Uh, can you open your Bibles to take them turn to Esther chapter 5? Esther chapter 5. Esther is one of those books that at the beginning you kind of wonder where is it going. The Esther 1 is the king gets a new wife. But then kings always get new wives. It happens all the time. So wh- where is this particular story? And, and as you read Esther, a high official in the kingdom decides to target a certain ethnicity. It happens to be the Jewish people. As he targets them, that also includes targeting the king's new wife, the queen. And Queen Esther is put in a position where it seems like her only move is to appeal to the king. But that's risky. If the king doesn't want you in his presence, he can certainly kick you out. He can also end your life. And so with that in mind is where we come to Esther chapter 5. And Mike's going to read Esther chapter 5 for us today. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached And touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther... Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning... 
Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Thank you, Mike. This story gets more and more fascinating. A lot of background information in the opening chapters, but now you can see the action of the story really begins to move. I mean, the first couple chapters cover nine years, but chapters five, six, and seven cover two days. And these events are going to be some of the most critical events in the life of the Jewish people at that time. Mike just read chapter 5, and really it divides up into a couple parts. I want us to look at the big themes of some of those parts. So chapter 5, in really verses 1 to 8, Esther is approaching the king with a request. And in the second part, Haman is making this plan to deal with Mordecai. Let's look at that in part 1 there of where Esther approaches the king. Let's take a closer look at that. I don't know if you've been with us throughout the weeks you will have noticed a change in Esther. When Esther starts in this story, she seems to be at the whim of everybody else. But here, she has gathered people together to fast for her. And she has put on, did you notice verse 1 and 2? She's put on royal robes. She's actually called Queen Esther by the king. Everybody knows this is a royal position. This is a person of influence by the time you come to this chapter. She goes into the inner court where the king is on the throne. And the king notices her. There's this interesting phrase that shows up, it seems like, wherever Esther goes. It says, she wins favor. She wins favor. Where does that come from? Why does that happen to her? The author doesn't tell us. But she is winning favor. And she wins favor again in the sight of the king. He sees her in the court, holds out his scepter. She approaches. And the king's got a big offer. So the king's feeling generous and he says, you know, whatever you want, Esther, up to half of the kingdom. You need to know that whenever a king said that, he really never meant it. All right? He never meant that. Not, not, not that extravagant. But I think it's a message to say, I'm feeling pretty generous. Try me, Esther. Try me. What, what do you want? What do you want? I'll, I'll give you up to half the kingdom today. We would think, we would expect, Esther, this is the time. I mean, the king just opened wide the gate. You better, you better tell him what you need. Because your life is in danger. All of your people's lives are in danger. This is the time. This is, this is the time to go. And, and yet she gives this odd request in some ways. She's shrewd. Says, if it pleased the king, I, I've got food ready. I'd like to have a banquet. The king likes his banquets. So why don't you come and, and bring Haman? I'd like the two of you to come. Everything's prepared. The king's response is, get Haman here. We're going to do exactly that. Sounds good to him. As you read in verse 6 through 8, the the meal, the banquet actually takes place. It says kind of after they were done eating, like then just started cocktail hour, where they started drinking. If you've read the story this far, you know the king really doesn't make good decisions when there's drinking involved. But, but, but here he goes again, and, and, and he makes another request to Esther. He says, well, what do you want? I'll give it to you. I'm feeling generous. Half the kingdom, Esther, what do you want? Tell me what you want. I want to do something for you. Esther lets her wish be known. And she says, if I found favor, and now it's like the, if there's a soundtrack, the music's building, if I found favor, 
if it pleases the king. And we're all like, see, she's going to go for it here. But then it's odd the way, even in Hebrew, it's odd the way it ends. And it's as if she says, ah, here's my request. I'm going to tell it to you tomorrow. We're just getting to know each other. Let's get back. To, let's, get, let's do this again tomorrow. And then I'll tell you. Then I'll tell you, king. You've, you've asked me twice. Then I'll tell you what I really want. And so, again, the way the story is told, we're saying it, it should be go time, but it, but it isn't. And with all that on the line, why are things not moving forward? So we get kind of the, the king and Esther set in place. But then did you notice how part two, we get two more characters put into place. We have Haman and Mordecai. And Haman specifically is making a plan to deal with Mordecai in the second part of this chapter. This is a great piece of writing where we, we see another confrontation of, of Haman and Mordecai. So it says that Haman is joyful and glad of heart. That's a nice way of translating. He's high in spirits. Emphasis on the spirit. He's, he's lit. And so as he's, as he's leaving this place, he's, he's excited. He's wound up. He's gotten to a, a royal invitation with the king and with the queen. And then he, then I, I don't know. I mean, does he turn a corner and there, and there he sees him. There he sees him again. He sees, he sees Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't rise. Mordecai doesn't tremble. Did you notice what verse 10 said? It says, like, Haman was so mad, but he restrained himself, and he went home. Someone says, if the author, I mean, this is one, this is a man planning a genocide. We're not especially supposed to like this guy that much. But, but oh, he's patient. Good for, good for Haman. He doesn't just have him executed on the spot. He's patient. And then a strange picture emerges. He goes in the, notice he's, he, he wants his wife present and he wants his friends present. And then did you notice what he does? So he's got a slideshow prepared. I mean, I'm imagining this. The slideshow is like why Haman is so great. But he's showing this to his wife and his friends. Notice what he, he does in verse 10. First of all, he says, let, let me just show you my net worth. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? And then he goes on to recount. Now, this is to his wife. He, re, he goes on to recount, I have 10 sons. I think she knew. I think she knew. So even as it goes on in verse 3, it's all the promotion, or the, the verse 10 and 11, all the promotions he had been honored with and how he had advanced above all other officials. And in, in, in all of this, we're, we're hearing this prideful man, and it can't help but ring in our ears Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we are seeing the epitome, the epitome of pride. He's got, I'm glad you like the show, but there's something else. I've been invited to a romantic dinner for three. The king and the queen and me. And we're all going to be together. I mean, it is almost a comical figure as we're reading this, this about Haman. I mean, it doesn't dawn on him that he, this, this may not go well for him. He thinks, of course I'll be there. It's the king and queen and Haman. Of course I'm there. All the important people will be there. I mean, he, he has that high, uh, an escalated opinion of himself. And, and then it, it, it's like, it's all going well for Haman, but then he recounts his frustration. In verse 13, he says, yeah, but all that really doesn't matter. All the money, all the zeros at the end. Like all my sons, all the positions I have, all the titles. But there's this guy 
and he will not, he will not even acknowledge who I am. You see, with Haman, something's very important. And, and if you just read, you read how the, the scripture says it, what matters is when Haman sees someone and they don't give him the attention. Like when he can see you and in his sight, you're not bowing down, you're not trembling, that makes him, him lose it. This is eating him alive. He gets some advice from his wife and, and all the friends. They've, they've got advice. Why don't you do this? You're Haman. Go make some gallows. And in the morning, go to the king. You're, you're in with the king. Just tell him what you want. The king will do it. Hang Mordecai and then go on to your party. It says, interestingly enough, right, at the end of the chapter, this idea pleased Haman. He liked that one. That's a good one. Let me do that. And so this chapter ends. You see a collision coming, don't you? Again, the writer of this story has brought two characters here and two characters. We have Esther and the king and we have Haman and Mordecai and they are getting ready to collide. All of it is getting ready to collide. It could seem if if we're just reading this. And of course, I've mentioned before, God's not mentioned in this book. So it'd be easy to kind of look at it through the lens of Esther seems to have like the positive momentum on her side. The positive energy is all going for Esther. She's winning favor. The king's saying whatever you want. And then when we look at Mordecai, we'd have to say like, I think the deck is stacked against him. He's made the wrong enemy. But is that all that's going on here? Is that the right way to look at this? Can we stop here and just take a moment at the end of this chapter to look at a theme that I think runs throughout the whole book of Esther? We've alluded to it, but we haven't talked about it specifically. In the book of Esther, remember again, God isn't mentioned. So you're, you're made to think about, what do, what do I do with all the random events? What do I do with all these coincidences? What do I do with all the, like, for such a time as this? What do I do with Esther winning favor? I mean, how, what's going on there? How am I meant to process that? How do I process that in my own life? I mean, there's a thousand things that happen in in a given day, in a given week. Some of them seem random. Like, what what does all this mean? Very few people in the world, looking at all the craziness and things that happen, very few people in the world can actually look at all that and go, yeah, I think there's no bigger picture. I think there's no purpose, no point. I think there's no higher being or higher thing Very few people in the world can actually get away. It just doesn't, like, life doesn't even cohere that way. To say it's all random, no point, no purpose. So most people in the world come down to seeing all of that kind of stuff, coincidences or things that happen or right place at the right time. Most people, it begins to flow of one of two streams. And that is either you see fatalism or you see see God's providence. You either look at the world through the lens of of fatalism or you see it through God's providence. What is fatalism? So it's it's saying like, well, it's fate. It's, It's not that like everything is totally random. That there's something else going on, but, it, but emphasis on the something, something bigger. It's an impersonal force that may be the, a fate or destiny or the stars have aligned in such a way. And that fate, whatever it is, whatever, 
whatever we think it to be has some sway over the events of our lives. The fact that this happens to you but not to her and this happens to him but not to you. I mean, all that is like, well, it just, I guess it's in the stars or some force. And because it's just impersonal, it doesn't ever feel like we're totally responsible, not always. Because what happens, what happens? You can't resist it. It's going to happen anyway. Fatalism has no easy way of distinguishing what is from what should be. It's just, well, it happened. There's really no certainty that your actions now have any bearing on the future. I mean, you can hope, right? Maybe. Maybe if you do this, you'll get some good karma. Maybe. Maybe some positive vibes for the future. Maybe. But there's no guarantee. There's no certainty. We have different ways of talking about it. You ask questions like, what are the odds or what a coincidence or the planet's kind of aligned or I got a break or I'm just lucky, I I don't know, or it wasn't in the cards or the deck was stacked against me or a thousand other things. So my, my question, we talk about fatalism and providence, my question is, what is your worldview on this? I'm not worried so much about terminology. If you use the word lucky this past week, it's okay. I'm not worried about that so much. It's like, how do you think? How do you make decisions? How do you process bad news? How do you process good news? How, how, do, you, how do you make sense of all these things that come into your life? I think how we talk matters, but how we view the world certainly matters. And are we always just chalking up to, well, I guess it's just right place, right time? Or does it ever get more personal than that? Only slightly better than fatalism would be some idea of like, yeah, the, the, the big man upstairs or someone up there must be looking out for me, which really doesn't have any sort of idea of like I'm bowing the knee to the almighty God who rules. It's just kind of a tip of that. I guess someone's looking out. But what do you think? See, there's another side. In providence, providence teaches us, and it's very incompatible with fatalism. Providence teaches us that God is a person, not a force. He's not a machine, not a robot. This personal God has a will. He has plans. He makes plans. He decides. He grieves. He's morally perfect. He executes his plan. We know what this personal God is like, this God of providence. We know what he's like because he gave us his son and his His son is a person. He's the image of God. We know exactly what God looks like because we've seen who Jesus is and what he was all about. We don't have an impersonal God. We have a personal Savior. And this personal God has sway over everything, power over everything. He holds it all together. He made it. And he's still active. He's not like the the guy who winds the clock and then lets it go and says, good luck with it for the next 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, million years, billions of years, good luck with it all. But it's a God that knows our bodies, that knows, knows the occurrences, knows what's going to happen. We don't, and so we're called on to act. We don't know how everything's going to go. We don't know the future. Do you have a God that's the God of providence, or is it just like, well, whatever happens? We're morally accountable to this God of providence. And we can be certain that the future matters, because this person This God is our judge. I think about all the times Jesus talked about heaven and hell, and it was a lot. It's probably a lot more than you think. 
I think Jesus was communicating to us, what you do now matters because there is a God that is overseeing all of this. I think we need to correct some thinking. It's easy to live in a world that it is what it is and even Christians can absorb that without recognizing no, no, God will go with us through the events of the day and tomorrow and the next week and the next year and, and when we're in a place where we wonder like how did all this happen maybe for our good or maybe we're, we're sensing it's, it's painful we can know there is a God who is weaving this together someone described it it's kind of the difference between an avalanche that just comes down and messes up everything in its path and the difference between that and a, a rolling river that starts small and begins to grow and grow and grow and come out and that is like God's love it's not just this avalanche that destroys everything in its path it's this perfect plan that rolls out and it's a picture of his love. It only is working for the good, especially those who are the chosen people of God. Much more we could say about providence and fatalism, but I want you to think about how do I process what goes on in my world? We left two men that I think were particularly all churned up on the inside. We left a king who had been told twice, like, let me tell you later what I want from his queen. I think this works on him. When we left Haman, he's got a midnight building project. He's busy. He's got a lot on his mind for the evening. And then we come to chapter 6. And when we come to chapter 6, I mention all that about providence and fatalism because you're going to start reading about these coincidences, these things that just happened. And, and you've got to put those together in some way. So let's listen. Let's listen if just like one of these dominoes were not in, the, in play. And how would, how would things have fallen out if, if just one of the pieces of this story had not happened exactly how it does? Let's watch God work his will out. Look at verse 1 of Esther chapter 6. On that very night, the king couldn't sleep. What are the chances? That night. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, particularly his. The chronicles, and they were, they were read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to assassinate to lay hands on king Ahasuerus. The king said... What do we do for them? What honor or distinction had been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, well, we didn't do anything. Verse 4, the king said, see, the king doesn't ever make any decisions by himself in the book of Esther, so he's got to get somebody to give him some advice. The king said, who's in the court? Let's bring them in. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace, and he did this because he wants to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, well, Haman's here, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. The king said to him, what should we do? What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? We get this brutally honest moment, this look into Haman's mind. Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? So he quickly quickly begins to think like, what would I really want? And again, it's all about being recognized. Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought. 
the ones the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal like the royal insignia is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials, the grand marshal of this parade. It can't be anybody. No, you got to have you got to have a high flyer to lead this parade. You got to do it right, king. So pick someone that really, really is important. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry. I like it. I like the idea. Hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Oh yeah, Haman, don't leave out anything that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse. He dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, this is what will be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I'm sure he wasn't saying it with like the most energy. Mordecai returns to the king's gate. Haman hurries to his house, mourning his head's covered. It all unraveled in one day, didn't it? Haman tells his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. I just want you to notice what happens after he tells them. In verse 13 here. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, Ah, this is a bad idea to begin with. You have Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall as of the Jewish people. You won't overcome him. I don't know what you were thinking, Haman. Did you notice just previously, the previous chapter, it was their idea... They have this plan, but now notice them distancing. Oh, oh, silly Haman, like, what are you you thinking? This was foolish. Who comes up with a plan like this? You knew he was a Jew. You won't overcome him. You will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast where Esther's going to reveal her wish. We can't leave these chapters without taking a serious look at Haman. Haman is pathetic, pathetic in this scene. He can't assess things well. He gives his own induction speech to the Persian Hall of Fame. Here's who I am. Look at all this stuff I've done. Here he, he, he's in fantasy land of like, what, what have I always wanted? How have I always wanted to be honored just like the king? He's self-centered. That makes him so blinded by pride. He then pursues his all-consuming need like it's all okay, except for the fact that Mordecai. So actually, it's not all okay. He recklessly pursues it. It'll kill him. It's suicidal, his pursuit of getting the approval of everybody. 100% approval rating is suicidal for him. Everyone sees it. Everyone except for Haman. What What I think is important is that we look at Haman, but I think we ought to hold up the mirror and say, do I see myself anywhere in this story? Do I see myself as selfish? Do I write myself into everybody's story, every, the, whole, every, the whole world? Like it all hinges around me? Everybody notices me or they don't notice me, but I, I'm there and I'm the important person. Am I blinded? Am I blinded like you? He was blinded by, by this pride. Am I blinded by money? Am I blinded by pleasure? Am I blinded by lust? Everybody sees it. 
Is there this relationship that I'm pursuing and I know, and everybody knows, everybody knows it's to my own destruction, but I pursue it and I keep pursuing it despite warnings. I say, I've got to have it. Is it the control of like, I want to have this so much that nothing else matters if I can't get my way. And I should be able to get my way 100% of the time. And if when I don't get my way, then everybody else just better watch out. Because what matters to me is being able to control what he does and what she does and what they do. And I'm willing to pursue it at whatever cost. I don't care what relationships get hurt. I will be in control. Do you see yourself in in a, a need for approval or some fear or anxiety that right now everybody could see is ruining your life? Do you see it in some method of escape that just takes you out of the world? Maybe some substance or some other thing, some hobby that you, you binge on so that you just don't have to deal with anything. And yet you know this is ruining you. It's cutting you off from everything that matters to you. Do you see yourself in the story of Haman? It's like Psalm 7 says, the wicked conceive evil. They're pregnant with trouble and give birth to lies. They dig a deep deep pit to trap others, but then they fall into it themselves. The trouble they make for others backfires on them. We have a clear message in this passage. Like, here's the clear message. Don't be Haman. Resolve not to do this. You laugh and you cringe and we resolve and say, I don't want to be Haman. I don't want to let something drive my life to destruction. Haman's a marked man. We know it. We know he is. His stock is failing. He's not going to go high in the draft here. Nobody, nobody wants to touch him. Even those close to him are beginning to back away from him. And I say, I, I want to say, like, don't be Haman, but then we have to realize the picture of us and our sin is that we are Haman. I want to excuse and I want to justify the things that might ruin my life and ruin the lives of others. But actually, Scripture doesn't have a flattering picture of me in my sin. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That includes Curtis, that includes you. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in trespasses. Titus 3.3 3 says we ourselves were, were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions. That lust had so consumed us. That greed, that pride, that power, that approval, that fear had so consumed us. We were passing our days in malice and envy. Our spiritual biography doesn't look so good. I wonder if we've put ourselves in the place of Haman. And maybe you don't have to imagine it because it's happened to you where everybody began to treat you kind of differently. You began to feel shame. The shame of having to honor an enemy. The shame of friends beginning to back away. And your position that you thought was so good was gone in a moment. It's not nearly as strong as you thought it would be. The shame of having to wonder if people are talking about you. He's alone in his shame. There's no help. There's no hope. Everyone that matters to him, they're walking away. Have you ever been to that point where you're not even sure you'll recover? I think it's important that we recognize that's exactly, that's exactly the shame we wear apart from Christ. And I want to mock Haman. But then I recognize something in Scripture. And this is the most important thing that I want you to hear this morning is Jesus identifies with 
and in a manner of speaking, becomes Haman. He becomes the one who everybody looks at in shame. This is what scripture teaches us. He identifies with shameful sinners on the cross. We sing about the cross. We think about it and we think like, oh, what a, what a place of honor. I mean, like the, I'm proud of Jesus for doing that. What a place of courage. And, and we ought to respect Jesus because of it, like how, how tough he was enduring the cross. But no one, no one at the foot of the cross was going, let's all be proud of Jesus. And if you don't believe me, read the stories of those closest to him that actually betray him and then read about the one that denies him. I don't, I don't know him. I, I don't know who you're talking about. Watch as all of his followers run away. We, we hear the words of Isaiah 53 that when people looked at the cross, they, they esteemed him not. They despised him. Like, who is that? This is the way the life of a loser looks. That's what we get in Haman. But we see Jesus willingly identifying with that. We, we would think in the stories of the Gospels, Jesus is like showing his power. He's on the rise. But then he trades all of that in, in a moment to endure shame on the cross. And that is our shame that he's bearing. And it says in Hebrews 12 too that Jesus endured the cross. He looked down on the shame. He said that that's a small thing in comparison to what I'm doing for the people I love. He experienced all the shame so you would never be put in that spot before an almighty God where you gave all your good efforts and all your life and all your achievements and it all go up into smoke for eternity. He endures that shame. He endures the wrath of God. Someone has put it this way, shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way in shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming mockery. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. And his glorious dignity gave way to the utterly undignified, degrading reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching. Jesus tastes the destiny of self-centered fools like Haman and like us. So we would never be left to endure the eternal shame before God the Father. I don't know. I mean, have you humbled yourself before him? We sang the, one of the first songs we sang is, I am not ashamed I'm not ashamed. Have you identified with him when he's willing to identify with you in that? Have you identified with him? Have you turned from everything else? Has he been the one that doesn't just, he's not like the self-help coach, but he's the one that is crucial to your survival. That means your whole, whole life won't go up in smoke. Have you turned to him? Have you placed your whole life in his hands? Are you trusting in him? Those who do, here's the good news. Those who make that decision today to put their trust in him, they will never have cause to be ashamed. Let the world take everything away. We're in Christ, and in him we will not be ashamed. He's already endured it. He's already endured it to the total degree. Church, I, I, I'd say don't be Haman, but then I'd say we are. But then Jesus became that. So that's not our permanent residence. Can I ask you to bow your head?
In a moment, we'll sing a prayer that says, Lord, I need you. Maybe what we ought to feel in this moment is what Haman was beginning to feel as the world stripped away from him. Everything he'd worked for is going quickly. That would be what we would be. That is our position if it weren't for Christ. Lord, I need you. I need you every hour. I need you. Every one of us need him. Lord, we thank you that we are not left in our shame, not left as your enemy, not left in making a total wreck of our lives, not left in living this life for all the wrong things and only to find out later that was the case. We're not left abandoned. We're not left without spiritual family. We're not left without you as our Father. I thank you for all that Christ did, and I pray that our need of you will never be more clear than it is right now. We would have clear eyes to see how much we need you. Lord, give us grace to walk in those ways. All our days we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.